If that's not my favorite song we sing, it's up in the top five. Uh, Because, you know, I think the best songs that we sing as a church, they're, they're songs that are not only beautiful, but they're, they're words that call us to something more beautiful. And there, there are days when, you know, it, it takes a leap of faith for me to sing a song like that and mean it. And then there are other days when I'm overcome with the sense of the fact that, that the love of God really is changing us and helping us live that love towards one another. And that's, that's really what we're going to be looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians 13. And I, I want to warn you, at least I need to warn myself, that the, the truth is that many of us are so familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's, it's like there's another song that's in the top five, Amazing Grace. But it's been used so much in our lives, in so many places, right? You can kind of go into autopilot. I mean, you start, it doesn't matter. You watch movies that have nothing to do with faith, and they get to a funeral, and some bagpipe guy is playing, you know, Amazing Grace. And there's ways in which familiarity sometimes robs us of the fullness of the experience we should have when we sing a song like Amazing Grace or, or we hear somebody sing it. First Corinthians 13 is kind of that way from Scripture, It's like we've heard it so many times. I think a lot of us could probably quote it from memory if we hadn't just had the the praise team read it over us. And yet, I just want to encourage you, please open open your heart and your mind this morning to seeing something new in 1 Corinthians 13 that maybe we we haven't seen before. Hearing something that maybe you've you've never heard before. Because that's why we, we gather together as God's people around God's word. We're not here to hear things we've heard a thousand times before. We're, we're here to hear those familiar words and hear something brand new. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this morning and for this time. We thank you for Father's Day and we thank you for being our perfect heavenly father. And we just pray that you would call us closer into relationship with you through your Son and through your Spirit. We pray that as we open up the Bible to one of the key chapters that, that almost everyone has heard in one way or another in their lives, whether they grow up going to church or not, God, I just pray that you help us encounter you, that you help us encounter hope that the love you have for us is a love that we can live and that with all that we've experienced, there's still more that we haven't. So open our hearts, God, and help us be more and more your people. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. So as we've been in this, this study of 1 Corinthians and, and as we open up this ancient letter where, where Paul is trying to help these beginner Christians really start to understand what it means to, to live in church, not as some kind of place to go once a week, but to live as people who are defined in this new community, this countercultural community, where in a world where there's this cutthroat competition, they come to church and they belong to church, not because of what they've done, but because of who Jesus is. 
right? And that, that what Paul wants for them is to stop striving after self-importance, to stop giving their lives to just trying to have more and more power and more and more success just for the sake of power and success, but to say, no, that's, that's not the kind of life we were meant to live. We were meant to live in community, and we were meant to live in a community where we share everything, and, and we're not desperately trying to prove ourselves because we believe through and through that we've already been accepted and redeemed through God, right? That God is who defines us, that Jesus is who gives us our identity, that the Holy Spirit, any, any good thing that we're a part of or we get to do, that's, it's because of the Spirit. And so we don't brag about those things, but we're thankful for those things. We're grateful for what the Spirit allows us to do. And so he, he's tried to help them get to a place of, of reclaiming that because he's afraid they've lost it. He's afraid that they, they might have understood at the beginning But it's starting to fade away and the wisdom of the world, which isn't at all the wisdom of God, is starting to shape their hearts and their minds and their imagination again. And and he wants to to bring them back from the edge of that to the center of Jesus. So he's he's tried a bunch of different ways to talk about it. And and when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, he, he really wants to find a way to say, okay, there's really one foundational act. They can change everything else about who you are and how you're living in a relationship with one another. And that act is, is love. And the first thing that he's convinced of that they, they've got to get rid of if they're going to experience love is this constant temptation they have to, to play a comparison game. right? And that's exactly what's going on in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter how much success any one of them's had or, or how much the wealth they've amassed or, or how many amazing moments they've, they've been recognized for their achievements. They are constantly comparing themselves to one another. And Paul wants them to stop it. Now, he can't make them stop. Only they can make that, that kind of decision. And, and again, we talked about this over and over in this series It'd be nice if that was just one, one choice that you have to make once and then it's over. But no, it's a choice you have to make over and over again. And I think Paul is, is not shocked, but he's really disappointed that this comparison game, it even extends to how they feel God has gifted them within the life of the church. It's not just that they're, they're comparing themselves and competing with one another out there. It's that that they're not able to just check that, that competition at the door when they walk into the church. That they've, they've shaped their hearts and their minds in such a way where it's how they see everything, no matter where they are or who they're with. So, you know, and instead of competing over who's making the most money or has the most power or who ha- who's the smartest person or, or who's, you know, the, 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 most, uh, the, the one that everyone else wants to be like, they start comparing their spiritual gifts. Now again, Paul wants to say to them, look, it's a gift. It's nothing that you should be proud of. And, and they, I guess they listen to him. But the experience they have is they start to rank the spiritual gifts in order of importance and, and how impressive they are. And 2,000 years ago in Corinth, the most important gift, the one that, that they thought was the, the best one to have was speaking in tongues. Right Now, now some of the... the Church members in Corinth were gifted to be able to speak different human languages. Some of them were given the ability to speak in the tongues of angels. And, 
you get the sense that the people who were able to do that, they, they kind of made themselves the center of worship. And then there were people who were gifted with prophecy. They, they could talk about what was going to happen because they were so close to God and God had given them insight that they could stand up and speak to the whole gathered community and say, this is who God's called us to be. This is what God wants for us. This is the future that God is calling us towards. There were other people that had the gift of wisdom and knowledge, right? They were the ones with the, the they didn't need a Greek lexicon because they spoke it, but you know what I mean, right? They were the ones who did the word studies, and they were the ones who could teach you a new idea that you'd never thought before. Those were their favorites. You know, they, they weren't looking for, you know, the, to live out that song we sometimes sing, Lord, make me a servant. Like, that was fine if that was your gift, but my gift is prophecy, right? Or my gift is speaking in tongues, or my gift is being a person who can interpret the tongues that this other person is speaking. It became church, in other words, was just another stage where a select few people were showing off. And just like Paul says, when you gather around the Lord's table and some of you feast to the place where your stomach's hurting and then other people, their stomach's hurting because they're still hungry, you call that the Lord's Supper, but it's not actually the Lord's Supper you're eating. In the same way, he says, what kind of worship is that? You're not there to show off. This isn't about self-worship. This is about worshiping Christ, worshiping God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Stop comparing these gifts. And so then he says, okay, let me, let me lay it out as clearly as I can. Now, if you've got your Bible, if, if you look at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the various gifts, and, he, and we talked about this last week, right, where he says, look, whatever your gift is, you need other people that are gifted in different ways. If, if you're a, a hand or a foot, don't wish you were something else, and don't feel like you're not as important as the eyes or the ears, right? We all have a place in this community. We're all uniquely gifted, and this church suffers when you don't faithfully live out your giftedness. Right? We're diminished somehow. When, when we hold people back from serving or, or when we, we don't realize that all of us have some form of ministry, right? That, that we can't just leave ministry to the, the, the professionals, right? That's not at all the kind of vision that Paul has when it comes to church. He gets to the very end of, of chapter 12 and he says, I wish you would desire the greater gifts. You guys are fighting over the showy gifts. I wish you would fight over the greater gifts. And now let me show you the most excellent way, an even better way. And at first you might think, as you start to read through 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, you know, if I, if I have the, the ability to, to speak in the tongues of angels or of men, but I, I don't have love, I'm just annoying Right, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, which, by the way, were descriptions of pagan worship services where everything was loud and people were speaking over each other and they had these loud instruments they were playing because they had to make you feel something even though there wasn't really something happening. Right? And he says, that's not our worship. If I, if I have these other gifts, right, the gift of, of knowledge or wisdom, but I don't, I, I'm not good to anybody. If I give everything I am and everything I have, but I do it out of self-interest, what have I gained? I've gained nothing. And then he gets into this, the, the list, right, that's so familiar in verses 4 through 7. It's why we call it the love chapter, right? It's, it's why we, we talk about it this way. Now, here's the thing I want to I get you to understand. He's, he's not 
he uses the term love nine times in 13 verses, which is a lot. And the way it gets translated in most of our English Bibles is a little misleading because it almost sounds like a list of qualities or attributes. It's like adjectives, right? But these are verbs. This is not just what love looks like. It's not even him describing what it feels like to love someone in this way. This is how love behaves. This is what love does. So if, if you're thinking about how to kind of get it in your mind to picture the way they would have heard it, they wouldn't just hear love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. It's, it's a verb. So it's like love never gives up. Love treats people who aren't family like they are family. Right? Because that's really what kind means. It doesn't mean nice. You know the word kin. It's connected to the word kind. When you treat somebody with kindness, you're treating someone who's not your family like they are your family. You see how much deeper that is than just kind of listing off poetic words that you've heard a thousand times? Love never gives up. Love treats people who aren't family like they're family. Love doesn't want what it, do- what it doesn't have. Love's not envious, right? Love doesn't want what, what it can't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't show off, right? It isn't proud. It doesn't, I can keep going. It's, it's not just qualities, it's action. It's, it's how love behaves. And, and Paul is saying that's who you are and it's, it's what you're supposed to be doing not only when you're together, but you're actually supposed to be learning. It's like a school for love. That's what church is. It's a training center to figure out how you're going to start acting in that way. Because so many of us, I think spiritually speaking, we, we try to go from zero to 100 miles an hour. You know, you, you might hear a sermon on love and you get convicted. And you think, okay, starting this afternoon... I'm going to be the person who never gives up and, and never shows off and never wants what I can't have. Like, if you go from where you already are and you think you can immediately perfectly live out what, what Paul's describing here, you're going to get frustrated, you're going to, you're going to mess up, and then you're going to give up, right? Or at least that's, that's been my experience when I get convicted by that. He's saying we all need to be shaped. This is a formation of character, Church is the place where you practice this enough where it becomes your instinct, not just at church, but everywhere you are and in every relationship you're a part of. And by the way, this love isn't just a decision you make. It's not just an action you take. It is an action that you can only take because of the Holy Spirit. Loving this way is it's a gift of the Spirit. And it changes all the ways that we use you know, the talents and the skills and the opportunities that we've been given in our lives. Love is the foundation. It shapes everything. But man, it is not just romantic. It's not just supposed to be on a Hallmark card. It's, it, it's, it's not fragile. It's rock solid. And it's not something you and I are just going to start doing because we'd like to do it. It's who we have to decide we want to become through a thousand decisions every day where we have the, 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 the moment, right? The choice where 
Do I do the right thing, even though it's the hard thing that helps me be more like Jesus, or do I just fall into what I usually do when I find myself in difficult situations? And I just want to confess to you this morning, there are people in this room who I have interacted with in unloving ways, and they responded to me in loving ways that helped me realize that it's possible to do this. It really is possible. I want you to think about people. I want you, as you hear a phrase like, love never gives up, love, love treats people who aren't family like they are family, love doesn't show off. I want you to see faces and names of people who've actually lived that way, and it didn't happen on accident. It happened because that's who they were. It was their character. Okay, so that's what's happening in the, in the first half of the chapter. And now I want us to read together, picking up in verse 8. Love never fails. As for prophecies, right, the people who get to stand up and be prophets at church. As for prophecies, they will be brought to an end. As for tongues, they will stop. As for knowledge, it will be brought to an end. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect or when the complete comes, what is partial, we won't have any need for it anymore, right? It will be brought to an end. When I was a child, this is Paul being confessional, okay? When I was a child, I, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child. But now that I have become a grown-up, right, now that I've, I've become a man, I, I put an end to childish things. Now we see a reflection in a mirror. By the way, one of the primary things that Corinth was famous for at this time was making mirrors. Right? So that was a point of pride for them. This isn't a random image he's grabbing. He says, now we see a reflection in a mirror. But then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, right? Now I know partially. But then I'll know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Now faith, hope, and love remain, or they endure. These three things, the greatest of these is love. So, so these three words, right? Love never fails. It's, it's a simple sentence in English. It's a little trickier in the way that Paul first talked about it. And it, where it gets tricky for, for translators is the word fails. Because it, it's not just that love doesn't fail, it's also that love never ends. But it's not just that love never ends. It's also that love never falls apart. That's actually the image he uses. But it doesn't communicate, right? If I had up there, love never falls, you would think I left a word off, of the, off the slide, right? But it never falls apart in a world where everything else falls apart. Love never falls apart, and what Paul's trying to say is, and that means our relationships that are defined by love, they're going to never fall apart. They're going to endure. They're going to last. You can depend on your relationship with Jesus and all the other relationships that Jesus' love makes possible. That's the kind of life we're supposed to have. Not just as individual Christians, but it's the kind of life we're supposed to have as a family of faith. You know, this, this is Paul's way of saying what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where he says God is love. That's how he can say love, love's never going to come to an end because love is God. 
God is love. We can trust it. We can build not only our present, but our hope and the future on it. And it's the only thing that deserves that kind of devotion and focus. You know, sometimes uh, you hear people in our world say something like, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not really religious. Have you heard people say this? Okay. I think what people mean when they say this is I believe there's a God I just don't really like spending time with God's people. Right? I want to have a relationship with God. I don't want to have to work to maintain relationships with people where it's hard for me. It's challenging for me. Now, I don't want to be flippant with this because it's not only people who are like just disinterested in church. It's also people who may have been hurt in church by church people, uh, by church leaders, right? There's not a, I'm not, I'm not trying to caricature the kind of person that feels this. I will say, I think more and more in our culture, people feel like this is an acceptable position to take. Whatever gets them to that place, they feel like, look, this is, this is my sense of things. I believe there is a God. I, maybe I believe in Jesus, but church just isn't something that I want to spend my time with. Now, here's the, the difficulty with that. You know, I said in the first or second week of this series that you're a disciple of whatever it is that you devote the most time and energy and focus on. And in the same way, when somebody says, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, I, I think there's a bit of self-deception going on because Uh, As theologian David Dark, he has a book that's entitled, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And his point is, if you don't belong to a church community, you belong to some passionate pursuit or some community that replaces church. And you may not think of it in spiritual terms, but it, it takes up a ton of your time and your energy and your focus, and you start to think that it's what's going to give you a life worth living. Religion is is just the term we give to the way we try to fix what we think is most broken in the world. Right? All of us have a, a deep sense of what's most wrong with the world, and all of us want to see that get better, and we reach for various different kinds of answers. Christian people have reached for, for Jesus to be the answer to whatever it is that we think is wrong. There are other options There are other communities and conversations that you can devote yourself to that you really think is what's going to fix everything else. Uh, I'm about to shift from preaching to meddling, I think. Is that the term people use? I'm really nervous that way too many people in our world think that politics is going to save our world. And you can tell it by how invested they are and how anxious they are And how much they're trying to convince you that they're right and you're wrong. And they're terrified that the other side might win the election. And then all they do is a countdown to the next four years. Right? Or the next two years or whatever it is. I'm not just talking about presidential politics. You think about the average American and how much time they're spending online or watching, consuming ideas and words and images that are basically just political. And I got to tell you. I'm afraid that people who occasionally go to church are far more faithful attenders in front of their TV and their phones 
to a different community that they really think is going to fix what's wrong. Like the church is fine if you're feeling guilty and you'd like to come and, and get some forgiveness. But when it comes to the really important stuff, you need to be politically informed. Do you hear people talk like that? I hear people talk like that. They don't say the, the forgiveness part about church because that's pretty crass, right? But they talk to me. Have you read this article yet? Have you seen this? Have you seen this headline yet? Have you? I don't have anybody emailing me feverish emails about 1 Corinthians 13. So you can say you're spiritual, but you're not religious, but you are. And you need to pick your religion carefully, right? If you and you all are at church on a Sunday morning, right? Then the struggle becomes, okay, it's not so much a question of which religion you belong to, but then we start to easily get to a place where we basically say something like, you know, church would just be great if it weren't for all the difficult people. Have you ever thought that? Uh, yeah. It'd be great if it weren't for all the annoying, frustrating, immature people who disagree with me. And I got to say, Paul's on to something when it comes to preferences about worship. Uh, because let me tell you something. One of the things that frustrates me more than anything else is when we start to talk about worship And the only language we know how to use is what we like and what we don't like. And I fall into that too. You know, and I'm a part of the group of people who helps plan worship. And I've kind of gotten to the point where I feel like if there's one song that really connects with you, and the rest of them really connect with some other brother or sister here, but you just kind of suffer through it because it's not right up your alley, but you love that other person enough to sing out loud, that's probably a pretty good Christian worship service. That's not the way we tend to talk about it, right? I have my favorite songs. You have your favorite songs. You know, some of you in this room, I'm sure, really miss Stamps Factor, Bass Lead, you know. And then other people think it sounds like a pirate song. And so if we sing it, right, they're trying not to laugh. And you're brought back to to a time where you sang next to your grandmother. And you got to hear her alto lead. Right? How do we love and care enough about each other to say, you know what? I hope today that most of the worship service was designed for some other brother or sister, and I'm going to be there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing out because I'm there for them more than I'm there for me. And this stuff is difficult. And I guess that's the point I want to make, is too often I think we expect for church to come you know, naturally and easily. But what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is, there's nothing about church that's supposed to come naturally or easily. Church is designed by God. This isn't an accident. It's designed by God to be something life-changing that can only come supernaturally and through hard work. Of course you don't like everybody here. Join the club. That's kind of the point. Because you can't, if church is meant to make me more like Jesus, I need frustrating people in my life who I'm working to love. If, if I only have people in my life who are easy for me to love, how is that making me more like Christ? You know, sometimes some of you, I should thank you 
for, I'm not, I don't mean this flippantly, right? Like, I think I've made progress until you say that thing in just that way with just that tone of voice, and I got to choose love, (laughs) right? Yeah, I do the same thing to you. In fact, I run a risk. I talk way too much every Sunday for you to not have moments where you think, man, just let's sand and sing, right? Church is not supposed to be easy, and it doesn't come now. It comes supernaturally. It is only possible through the Holy Spirit and through us partnering and working. And I don't mean that thing where we say things like, I don't have to like you to love you. Okay, that may work for 35 seconds. But if I'm going to love you, I'm going to have to work hard enough to find something about you that I can like. I can't avoid you. I can't just be nice to you and, and try to make sure I go through a different exit and not have to run into you. And It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be challenging. And here's the thing. We need to recognize that it's hard and it's challenging and that there are social divisions that we have to work through. But what Paul's saying in verses 8 through 13 is he's come to the place in his life as somebody who I think is an intellectual and, and he loves trying to figure things out and trying to teach people and trying to explain things. And he's trying to get them to think the right thoughts. He's confessional and he says, you know, I've gotten to the place where I realize we can't heal the social divisions among us through rational agreement. The kind of shared healing that we really need to experience, it's only going to come through relational agape. That's the word he keeps using for love. It's unconditional. It's God's love. We're not going to be unified By making sure that we all have the same theological ideas and we all hold the same doctrinal positions. And I need you to hear me say that because I love theological conversations. I love trying to have better definitions of our doctrinal uh, positions. But the reality is it's always partial. I only know in part. You only know in part. Why would we break faith because two people who only know in part don't agree? It's hard because I think, if we're honest, our tradition was built on, I, I want to say this because I love our heritage, but it was built on the fallacy that we can know perfectly. The desire to know perfectly is the desire to be God. The desire to know perfectly is the desire to replace God. It's impossible, and it's, it's something that we have to confess so that we can hold on to one another more tightly than we hold on to our ideas. And that is really hard for me, because I, I have kind of prepared for years in my life to win theological arguments, to be more right than anybody else about whatever else it is. And I'm telling you, it's really hard to love someone you are constantly correcting. There's got to be a part of you that's accepting in addition to correcting. I mean, love involves correcting people, right? There's times in Scripture where it talks about Finding a way to lovingly wake somebody up, even through words of rebuke. But do we want to be the rebuking church of Christ? Like, we want that to to define us. The only way we're going to actually be able to be the church God wants us to be is to give everything we have. Now, now here's the thing. It's a good desire to know more. 
and to learn more and to have a better take or understanding. But, but knowing more, that's something that I think helps us grow. And as we grow, we're going to find it easier because of grace and our understanding of grace to admit the times that we've got it wrong. To accept that we're getting things wrong right now. We're blind to it. You know, I always ask people, do you know what it feels like to be wrong? It feels just like being right. You, when I asked you what does it feel like to be wrong, you heard me say, what does it feel like to realize you've been wrong? That feels embarrassing and all that other stuff, right? Regretful. No, what it feels like to be wrong and not know it is the same thing as being right. I have always been very confident when I'm wrong and don't know it. I find that to be true in my life. Ask Lauren. She's got a whole list of references, right? Like we all have those moments where it's like, whoa, yeah, I've been wrong. But we're wrong right now. What defines us as God's people is not that we've got it all right. It's that we're growing more and more into people of righteousness by the grace and goodness of God. And we share in it together. That brings us to the foundational truth for this week. Our our relationships in church are created and sustained through this intentional partnership, right, with the Spirit. The Spirit-empowered sharing of the same unconditional love that Jesus gives to each one of us. I I came across a story. I want to end the sermon with this story. It stayed with me all week. During World War II, there was a French village Les Chambon. I'm not going to say it a bunch because I can't speak French. I know in part. <laughs> uh, there were about 5,000 Christians in this little village, and they're in France. And, you know, France and Germany share a border. And this was during World War II, and, and the Nazis were, were sweeping across Europe. And this little town, 5,000 Christians, made the decision to shelter 5,000 Jewish men and women and children. And they saved their lives. And it was under constant risk of being discovered uh, and, and being pulled into the unimaginable evil of the Holocaust, right? And so they've, they've, there's been books written about this little village, and there's been documentaries made. And in one particular documentary, you know, the, doc, the filmmakers ask them questions and says, hey, um, how did you make this decision to do this? And, and to a person, they all kind of shake their heads, and they're like, hey, we're, we're Christian people. Like, what? They needed a safe place to stay. What else were we going to do? And at one point, they asked this one lady, how did you live with the constant fear that you were going to be discovered? And she said, we got used to it. We got used to it. I want us to be people who do the loving thing because we've made decision after decision after decision to partner with the Holy Spirit to the point it's who we are It's not just what we do. It's who we are. And when we find brokenness and darkness in our world, we do the costly right thing because we're used to it. Because we're used to it. We're going to sing together now. And I pray that as we do and as we look around this room and as we hear the, the voices of our fellow brothers and sisters, we're reminded of the fact That it's a gift to be here. That God gifts us in ways that hold us here. And that no matter what we do, the best we can possibly do is share the same love 
that God is pouring into our lives and calls us to live. Let's stand together.